welcome to season three of Goddard in the World podcast. I am your host, Amanda Faye Laxon, and for the first time in uh, Goddard in the World podcast history, my co-host, Sam Rebeline, who you have heard, if you are a fan of the podcast, you've heard him on two other podcasts, his own podcast, um, in the end of season one, I believe. And then the spooky pod episode (laughs) with (laughs) Sam and Mike Alvarez. Uh, Welcome, Sam. Hey, thank you for having me uh, back as a host. This is uh, amazing. I'm so excited to be on the show in like an even more official capacity now. Um, We've already, I mean, both of those conversations you just mentioned were a lot of fun and Mm -hmm. I'm excited to have more conversations like that about one of my favorite things which is goddard so yeah goddard (laughs) horror like yeah Yeah. everything all all the all the things all the spooky things and speaking of spooky things we have a great first guest for this season uh christy peterson schoonover we talked to her this is like a double length episode (laughs) yeah so many i mean it's on recording it's supersized but like you guys don't even know that like we talked to her for like half an hour before half an hour after like so like we talked to her for like three hours probably total right yeah she's just so fascinating and such a great person to talk to and um i feel like i had so many questions for her and she had so many stories so this is a really great way to kick off season three um we recorded this episode in the beginning of August, mm-hmm. the very first weekend of August. So uh, it's been a minute, uh, but, you know, everything we say in the podcast is still true. <laughs> it hasn't yes. expired. No, it hasn't expired. No, I mean, like, I think at this point, she has I mean, she has already gone to the Comic-Con and, like, had her reading there so like we don't know how that went i hope it went well um but uh christy is an amazing writer and uh you know we'll we'll put all the links in the show notes um but definitely Mm -hmm. check out her writing um amazing and prolific writer i mean she she said she always has stuff coming out and what the way she talked about like her writing process and how she submits and everything is just like amazing education for a working writer and editor like because she's also the editor of 34 orchard and so like Mm -hmm. to see it from both sides of the submission process is like very educational for any and like you know no matter what genre you write in um right sam like i mean you like yeah you learn stuff about like submitting right (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, she had a lot of great pointers um, for writers. Uh, I think the phrase she used was like, writers who are early in their path, you know, like young mm. writers and writers who are young in their path, but maybe not like young age wise. I just she had a very mm. diplomatic way of talking about writing and the creative process mm. that I really appreciated. So I'm excited yeah. to share this conversation with everybody. Yeah, me too. So without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Christy Peterson Schoonover. Yeah, kick back, relax, unless you're listening to this while you're driving, in which yeah. case don't yeah. kick back. Be, be, alert. be yeah, alert. You will be, because Christy is uh, very energetic, <laughs> so I'm excited for you to hear
we have here today Christy Peterson Schoonover. Uh, Christy Peterson Schoonover's stories have appeared in many publications, including Generation X, Horror Library Volume 7, Lovecraftian Microfiction Volumes 6 and 7, Wicked Creatures, Crow and Cross Keys, Dancing in the Shadows, and Anne Rice Tribute Anthology. That just came out, didn't it? Yep. Cool. It did in May. In May it came out. Awesome. Amazing. Yeah, I've seen that around. That looks really cool. I'll have to check it out. Um, Dead Stars and Stone Arches and others. Work is forthcoming in Out of Time, True Paranormal Encounters. Her novel, Bad Apple, will get a 10th anniversary release this year. And her short story collection, The Shadows Behind, will be followed by a second collection in 2024. She is also currently curating the anthology Wicked Sick for Wicked Creative. She holds an MFA from Goddard College. Amazing. Has held three Norman Mailer Writers Colony residencies. Is founding editor of the journal 34 Orchard. Is a board member of the New England Horror Writers. And is co-chair of the Horror Writers Association's Connecticut chapter. Awesome. She lives in the Connecticut woods where she enjoys watching birds with her husband, Nathan. Thank you so much for joining us today, Christy. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. I am so excited to be joining you guys today. Yay, (laughs) we're excited to have you! (laughs) This is so fun. We have so much to talk about that we were um, chatting for like half an hour before we even started recording um, (laughs) and just covered so many different topics. But what I want to start with, uh, we were talking about your experiences as a young writer and growing up sort of having to multitask and how that's made you a stronger writer. So can you talk a bit more um, now that we're actually recording? <laughs> about, yeah. Um, yeah. Some of your experiences uh, growing up and being a young writer and, and what that sort of having to multitask was like. Yeah. Um, I can start from the really, really early beginning. Um, I was a really early reader, uh, like really early. Uh, my dad was an English teacher and my mom was a musician and a dancer She was also a Connecticut's junior miss in 1964, and uh, she was a music teacher. And so my parents were both very creative people. They did a lot of work in community theater. Uh, They looked at theater and art in general as a way to reach people and help them grow and help them think um, and to change their lives. So even from a very young age, I was constantly surrounded by creativity, the idea that creativity is important because it should go deeper than entertainment. Um, But also because of that, initially it was a lot of chaos. There's pictures of me as a tiny baby, like in a crib while they're doing the Fiddler on the Roof bottle dance in front of my crib. Like it's, (laughs) I was just always surrounded by that. But then my dad was always reading me a lot of advanced stories from uh, a a young age. Um, Like I had read Moby Dick on my own by the time I was eight. Um, And then he, yeah, and he would spend time explaining things to me. And then I had full access as I got a little older to his den, which, you know, okay, the the dad who smoked cigarettes, drank beer, smoked a pipe in the 70s had the den, right? It's like their man cave, their version of the man cave. <laughs> For sure. And this thing, the shelves were full of 1970s thrillers, you know, stuff like Jaws ah. and Ghost Boat and 
and oh, Irving wow. Wallace is the word and Rosemary's baby and the Stepford okay. wives and all this kind Amazing. of stuff. And he would say the only, you can read anything you want down there because I can't mm. keep you, you know, now wow. I was maybe 10, nine or 10. Yeah. He's like, here's the rules. You don't tell your mother. <laughs> and if you have okay. any questions about something you read in there, because you know, these books were full of sex and drugs and all kinds of stuff. He goes, you come talk to me. Do not go to your mother. All right. So okay. my dad and I had a lot of interesting conversations about things like <laughs> masturbating and smoking grass wow. and hash and dad, what's a vagina, you know, and he, like, you know, um, so that was kind of interesting. And that's how I got started. And just before my mom got sick, which is where your multitasking question comes in, uh, he turned me on to short stories very specifically because he would come home from he was a high school English teacher, so he would bring me things like Leningen versus the Ants and the Monkey's mm -hmm. Paw and Contents mm -hmm. of a Dead Man's Pocket. And he'd read this stuff to me, and then he would explain what it was all about. Um, wow. And then I started writing, and my first sh short story was about a, a tree that wanted to commit suicide because it was different from all the other trees. Um, oh, wow. I know. He, he still ha I still have it in the basement. Like, he kept it. It's like this mildewed, like, falling apart thing. And, you know, everything, of course, you guys are writers, or at least I know you are, Sam. It's like, yeah, yeah that's really not great. Like, you know, that just needs to stay <laughs> in the mildewed basement. Yeah, I have one... I have one story from when I was 11 that every so often I'm like, I think that had something, but otherwise it's, yeah, it's going to stay in the box. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. Or you can mine it later maybe and do it in yeah, your own right. way. And yeah. it was basically because the other trees were evergreens and this tree was not. Um, okay. And I want to say I wrote that when I was, I don't know, maybe like five or six. It was on the big paper, you know, with the lines. Hmm. I don't know if they still have that anymore. Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. But then my mom got sick when I was eight and she got cancer and there were three children after me and I was parentified at a really young age. And in order to keep my love of reading and my love of writing going, I really had to learn how to multitask um, mm. because I essentially was getting the kids off to school. Um, you know, we laugh. I'm a Gen Xer and, and we laugh about how Gen Xers are survivors, um, yeah. you know, because we were just un, you know, I, I think it was Mike Mulligan who said in his interview, you know, come home when the streetlights are on. And that really yep. was true. Mm -hmm. But I had an additional layer of that because it truly was like Lord of the Flies in my house. Like the kids were just mom was sick in the back room and we just pretty much did whatever. Um, my youngest brother was a pyro, so he was always burning shit down and I was always lying to the oh, cops. Wow. I don't know where he is. I don't know what my brother did. I have no idea. Don't know. While, while I'm oh, hiding man. him in the closet going, shut your mouth and don't come out or they're going to take yeah. you to juvie. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, don't burn the closet know. down while you're, we're trying to yeah, please, yeah, give right. me the matches right now, whatever matches you have, I need them. Um, <laughs> so, oh my God. so it was really kind of crazy. And then that sort of continued because my first job out of high school was as a journalist and um, I got the school beat and I was actually in high school. I was 16. That was my first job. Hmm. And yeah. I'll never forget this. They Okay, so not only did they give me a tiny little desk in the very back of the room, it mm -hmm. was against the wall where the big giant presses were. 
So I would be trying to write and the wall would just be shaking and stuff would like fall. Like they had no pictures on that wall because pictures would just fall off the wall. Um, Because these things with these presses were massive. Yeah, we should probably remind people that papers used to be printed on (laughs) on watch watch an old movie watch citizen kane or even like the post or something you know like what which is not an old movie but like about the 60s but like to see what a newspaper printing press looks like (laughs) yeah it was it though they were massive yeah they were the size of like a wall like if you think of the back wall of your supermarket that's about how long they were they were the entire wall and what you would do is you would print your article to the specified size on a printer Uh and I remember when we got we had laser printers Okay. And that was a big deal in the eighties. If you had laser printers, you know, they were very, very expensive and you would, they would be cut on, on, you know, paper cutters, um, which I still have and use all the time. And then Mm -hmm. they would be glued or, or temporarily placed on these big sheets with these blue lines with wax, with hot wax. And then they would run through the rollers and make the impressions. And that's how that was done. Um, And thank you for reminding our listeners of that, because, you know, that's history that's going (laughs) to fade. Like, you know, now we just take that for granted. But yeah, I mean, like, I am guilty of reading the New York Times on my phone. (laughs) So (laughs) I used to have the print, um, but they make it very expensive to, like, be a subscriber. And I don't have a doorbell, whatever. I'm in New York and (laughs) the papers get stolen if you aren't able to like put them in a secure location. Yeah, yeah, totally. That was was my life like, I don't know, 10 years ago when I did have a subscription. Um, So yeah, but um, it is and was like quite a feat to produce quality print journalism it really and, was it yeah. was and and yet I'm really grateful because uh, next to me yeah. was all the police and fire scanners so I have <laughs> that noise going on all the time while wow. I was writing oh in addition to the chaos I had at home sure. and then my mother passed away when I was 15 um, oh wow she about just about a year before the newspaper job and she died in my okay. lap on the bathroom floor wow. And, you know, that certainly was a a defining moment for me. Um, But I can talk about how that affected me and how that's affected my work, Mm -hmm. because I would not trade those experiences for the world. But that said, this is why I can write in the middle of chaos now and why I'm Mm -hmm. pretty, I'm very good at multitasking. I can handle three, four things at once, because the reality is when you're a kid, And you have to sort of help your brothers and sister. Your mother is dying, but you still want to go to school and you still want to have a social life. Well, girlfriend, you better figure that shit out because you can't, you know, otherwise it's going to mow you down like, you know, otherwise it's going to mow you over. So you either figure it out and you figure out how to get this done or you're just going to die on the vine. And I think that that like I said, it it was certainly what I would call definitely a traumatic childhood, but I will say that I did not figure out that the childhood that I lived was not normal until I got to college. 
right. in, in at right. University of Rhode Island in the early 90s. And I had um, my first boyfriend there was a psychology major um, mm-hmm. and a philosophy major and um, was a very deep guy. And his mom sure. was a social worker. So and his dad was a pastor. And and we would sit outside and like smoke cigarettes, like tons yeah. and tons right. of cigarettes. Yeah. And that was when you could smoke inside too. So we would sit sure. inside mm-hmm. and chain smoke. I mean, that's just yeah. what you did. And, you know, we'd look at the stars or whatever. And one night he just turns to me and goes, well, you know, the way you grew up wasn't normal, right? And I go, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, well, yeah, you might have had some issues there. But it, it was good because I really started to learn that he sort of taught me that this was not something that I should, that I should carry with me and make peace with it as I got mm-hmm. older and not let it beat me. And not that it wasn't mm-hmm. going to be painful because it was painful and it still is painful sometimes, but to be able to use that as a driving force to do good rather mm-hmm. than to just, like he said, roll over and play dead. And he goes, obviously, right. you're not a rollover and play dead person because you could have been a druggie by now with all that going on. I don't know how you're not, sure. you know, and I'm like, yeah. well, thanks, I guess. But I don't know. <laughs> well, that's actually a great segue into another question that I had for you. You know, um, we were both looking through some of your website and different stories and interviews that you had posted. And um, one that really stuck with me, you had an interview with the Ginger Nuts of Horror a couple of years ago, and you said that when people think of horror, they don't think about the work as metaphor. But if we were to reframe horror as commentary on the world's afflictions, we might get there. Um, And it's funny, the way you talk about that trauma is so... I mean, I think that's something that people don't really think about, about trauma, that it's not traumatizing in the moment. It's traumatizing years later when someone says you know, either you have the panic attack that makes you realize, oh, I'm traumatized, or someone comes to you and says, you know you're traumatized, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Can you talk more about, like, how you think that's, because I know that as a horror writer, for me, I I can pick at traumas that have informed certain works for sure, but I'm sure that you must have more to say about that. So I'm curious if you could say more about how those moments and sort of reactions to them years later have informed work. Oh, wow. That is a really amazing question. Um, But it is really good because it's no, I'm glad you brought it up because it's part of why that is also part of the core of my magazine, which is 34 Orchard. You know, it's Mm -hmm. addressing these traumas. Um, Horror really is metaphor. And I think as much as horror has been branded, right? We think we tend to think of, oh, literary handles serious things, right? And like sci-fi handles, you know, less serious things and like horrors like pulp. Okay, none of that's true. The reality is that it doesn't matter what genre you're in. If it's done well enough, it is made to address these traumas. And the important work is the work that is going to reach someone who is either traumatized by something in his or her or their past or or has been traumatized and doesn't realize they're not alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that's really interesting was that, okay, I'll speak from example. So I write this book, Bad Apple, and it was my novel mm-hmm. in 2012. I wrote the book in 2005. It languished in my basement. In fact, Mm -hmm. I wrote it in nine days, start to finish. 
Oh my gosh. I did not. It was the best nine days of my life. I had an absolute blast. I just would every day I would just get up and do this. Did I have a job? Yes, I was going to my day job. I was whatever. Um, I will venture to say that nothing got done at my day job for like probably over a week. Um, but whatever. I only did what was absolutely necessary. It didn't matter. But the thing is, I didn't realize until years later that what that story was. It's a story about a girl whose mother falls down a well. It's unreliable narrator. So we really aren't sure if this girl actually may have pushed her mother down the well. We don't really know. Mm -hmm. Okay. But then she gets stuck raising her brother's baby and she's a teenager. Mm -hmm. And all of this, when this happens, and I think it was like maybe 10 years later, all of a sudden I realized I went back and looked and went, holy crap, that's my story. I just right. told that in metaphor. I didn't realize I was doing it at the time. Yeah. The book comes out and it's very polarizing. You know, if you mm. go on, I, I don't read reviews um, generally like on Goodreads and Amazon and stuff because I studied under Steve Almond at this conference in Miami oh, and he said, wow. number one thing you do, do not read reviews. Just fuck, fuck them. Don't read it. And he said, the reason you can't read them is because as writers, we are all fragile and we're all yeah. doing yeah. important work to talk. And all it takes is one really bad review um, sure. to make us feel like we like we shouldn't be doing this. And, yeah. you know, everyone has an opinion and that's OK. There, you know, everyone is allowed to say they hate this book or this book sucked or it was boring. He said, mm -hmm. you just don't necessarily need to hear it. Because otherwise, it's going to undermine what you're trying to do. And to this day, I haven't followed it. However, there are reviews on Goodreads <laughs> that do say this book suck. I didn't finish it, whatever. Uh -huh. um, mm -hmm. I haven't looked since. That was about 10 years ago. But on the flip side, I started getting contact and emails from people who read this book and said, this book is beautiful. Like I lost my mom when I was 12 and I totally understand this. And, or, wow. you know, I had to raise my sister's baby. Like I was getting all of these like amazing emails from people that were saying that it helps them feel better. They understood. Mm. They, one girl told me, I don't feel like I'm alone. Mm. Somebody else said to me, I'm not a freak anymore. I, I mean, I was blown mm. away by these emails. Sure. And, mm. you know, my dad had always said to me, as a writer, if you reach one person, then you have done the job that you were supposed to do. But mm -hmm. recognize that you may never hear about that. That yeah. one person wow. that you reached yeah. may never write to you, may never speak to you. You may never have any idea. But just know when you put something out there, you will have done your job if you reached one person. And that is mm -hmm. all you need to do to make a difference with your work. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think that was the case with Bad Apple. In this mm -hmm. case, I was lucky enough to have at least three women who took the time to write to me and say, yeah. this yeah. helped me. But, you know, there could be lots more else, others out there that I helped that didn't write. You know, I mm -hmm. mean, I read stuff, short stories that blow my mind. I don't always take the time to write to that person and say, right. oh my God, this story changed my life. I don't always yeah. do it. You know, sometimes I do, but mm -hmm. it just depends on my time and my energy and 
you know, and, and thinking back on some of the short stories I read when I was a kid and how they impacted how I saw the world, yeah. you know, I mean, it's like, if I could write to those people today, a lot of them are dead, but if I could write to those people today and be like, <laughs> I read your story and it, you know, this changed my life. Um, one of them in particular mm. was dead letters, I believe by Mario. Oh gosh. I can't remember his last name. Um, Miss Silvic, I think is how it's pronounced. But it's mm. a beautiful story about this man who loses the love of his life and he's just bitter. And mm. in a way, it kind of, I read it when I was in my 30s, so about 20 years ago, and it made me understand my dad better after mm. reading this story. Like mm. I saw my dad after what he went through losing my mom, I kind of understood him better after I read this story. Mm. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's things like that. So I think trauma is really important to address through metaphor because mm -hmm. I think it's easier to swallow. Mm -hmm. And I also think that an important element of fiction that I think people don't necessarily recognize and sometimes writers don't recognize it either is that it's important to not only tell a story but to create an emotional pull with that. Yeah, You mm -hmm. have yeah. to yeah. make that reader feel something. Yeah. You can't just yeah. be like, oh, here's my story about a toad and it got smashed and right. that was terrible. No, I want to read the paragraph about the toad that got smashed and I'm so upset about this poor toad yeah. that it moves I, me. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. And I always, you know, that's what I think of when writers talk about following a character through their day, you know, like yes. there's a magic to it because you're just trying to hear the emotions that you're getting out through some weird process you know the story that i shared with you um split the only seed of that story was i was in bed with my girlfriend and we were like okay what or, you know she was already asleep and i was like what's the scariest thing i could possibly hear in this apartment right now and so then um the next morning sat down and started writing the story and it became a story about relationships and grief and all these different things I shared it with a few people and they were like, well, you know, what did you set out to say about grief or whatever? And I was like, nothing. I just thought it would be scary if we were in bed and we heard a class break in the kitchen. You know, So it's funny that, you know, and I'm sure like you had a similar experience with Bad Apple, like the seed is just the the image. And then it's everything yeah. behind that image that you sort of plumb out. And I think that process is fascinating, you know, because. Well, it, it is. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, because it doesn't make sense. There's an element of it that you're always just like, I don't know, I. I got it out. I don't know what happened, you know? Well, and I think it's because we, as writers, we connect to whatever it is that is unresolved in us in some way. Hmm. And that's how you get that emotional pull. Like when I read, you know, Split, the story that is going to be published in 34 Orchard. Um, yeah, I didn't know if I could going say to it. to be out I... there. Yeah, you <laughs> yeah. can. I've <laughs> not decided um, which issue it's going in yet, um, yeah. but it's definitely going to come within the next two issues or three, mm. I think. The thing that struck me about that story is that it's really about you feel the emotional push and pull of this guy to like leave his girlfriend, like, we need to, it's almost like we need to break up, but we shouldn't. Okay. Mm -hmm. But we don't want to break yeah. up, but we should break up. Who hasn't been there? Right. In yeah. a right. way, yeah. that's horror, right? Yeah. Because yeah. the trauma in that is destabilization, mm -hmm. right? Destabilization mm -hmm. is a fear that we all have. And I think this is why 
it's important in our writing as writers to talk from the places that where our trauma, where our fear comes mm -hmm. from, because that mm -hmm. is how we emotionally connect with others. Um, yeah. In your particular case, Sam, like I said, who hasn't faced that because it's destabilization. So let's talk about destabilization as trauma for a minute. They're talking now about all of these people who really had issues in the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that and that there is a trauma aspect to this and that there is a PTSD fallout from this. Mm -hmm. um, that is because the pandemic came along and destabilized everyone's routines, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. One day mm -hmm. you're going to work, you have this thing, there's the annual Christmas party every year, there's, you <laughs> yeah. know, going to the, yeah, I mean, it sounds funny, yeah. but when you think about it on a larger scale, yes. and this is exactly sure. what we go back to with metaphor, right? What is the annual Christmas party that you look forward to? It's not just an annual Christmas party. It is a metaphor for, tradition, things that we can count on, things that we hold dear. It's a metaphor for the emotional joy we feel in connection with other people. That is what a Christmas party is really about. It's not just a damn Christmas party where you go get shit faced and, you know, smoke some pot and open some presents. Like it's right. deeper than that. You know, it's much deeper than that. So what happened during the pandemic is that a lot of people who had never been destabilized before mm -hmm. had no idea or tools mm -hmm. for handling it. They yeah. literally mm -hmm. didn't know what to do. And so mm -hmm. I hate to say this, but for me, it was fabulous. I, oh yeah. my God, I loved it. <laughs> Why? Yeah. Because everything in my body went, oh, holy shit, I know this. Yeah. Because when yeah. I was growing up, right? There was a lot of anxiety. There was mm -hmm. a lot of fear. There was a lot of mm -hmm. uncertainty because my mother had cancer for eight years. She was dying yeah. every day. There was, there was some kind of shit. You didn't know what was going to happen. It was literally yeah. like I would wake up every day and go, the sword of Damocles is swinging over my head. Which yeah. way is oh, it going to yeah. hit me today? Is she going to die today? Yeah. Is she going to have to go to the hospital? Is my brother going to burn down the neighbor's car? What if we're out of food? Uh, shit, did I get the checks? Did I get dad's checks? Did dad sign the checks or am I going to have to forge the check? That was what mm. I lived yeah. with. Yeah. So when the pandemic came and everything went to shit, my whole body went, oh, I know how to deal with this. And I was writing like crazy because that is how yeah. I handled it when I was a kid. I just wrote right. and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And so all of that came back. I banged out 23 stories in one year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I wrote a bunch. That's amazing. Yeah. I felt yeah. the same way. Yeah. So That's those amazing. of us who had experienced a type of destabilizing trauma fared a little bit better than mm -hmm. those of us who didn't. And that's only because we were familiar with it and our bodies recognized it. But many yeah. people did not have that advantage. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't know how to navigate or how to cope. They didn't have any tools with, yeah. you know, I yeah. mean, it's it was kind of like when everyone got upset because they couldn't see their families for Christmas. Right. And yeah. I was sort of like, well, shit, I haven't seen my family for Christmas in years and my mom's dead. And so Christmas kind of sucked after that anyway. So I'm cool. Yeah. Whatever. You just want to pour yeah. some wine and sit around and watch TV. I'm good. 
Like I didn't, I was cool, <laughs> but that's yeah. just because I had been there before, yeah. whereas so many people had not. And it's not, yeah. it's not, I'm not judging anyone for not, mm-hmm. that's not my point. My point is just that I definitely see a clear line and that's why it's important to write things like horror and write them from our genuine whole experiences so that others can feel yeah. comforted. So others can go, I'm not alone. Oh, look, I'm not alone. She gets it. Like I got a review for the short story, nothing to see here. Mm-hmm. And I cried when I read this review and it happened to be on my mother's birthday that the review was published. So I wow. knew my mom was trying to, it was almost like, I felt like my mom was trying to say, I see you, Christy. I see you. Like, I see that you miss me and I see whatever. And the mm-hmm. way that this woman wrote this review, I was like, this woman gets it. This woman sees me mm-hmm. that I met her in person because we were in the same anthology together, but didn't make the connection. We were even on a cocktail hour together and didn't on a zoom cocktail hour, didn't make the connection. It was the same person. Oh, oh my gosh. Sure. And then we started speaking to each other later. And I f- come to find out she lost her mom. Yeah. Wow. And one yeah. of the things she said to me when we were chatting afterward, once we found out was she said, I read that story and realized that whoever that you, that you must've been through the same thing that I was because you couldn't have spoken as accurately and as genuinely to this, you knew Mm. every single emotion. And so that's why it's important because I think we can reach people and, and couch it in entertainment. That's appealing, right? Like how many of us read memoir, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, Yeah, I'm going to go read this memoir about people have said to me, Oh, you should write a memoir about your mother dying of cancer. Hell no. Who wants to read yeah. that? Boring. No. But yeah. if I'm talking <laughs> about these, and and quite frankly, there are so many people who have lost so many moms and dads and people to cancer. It's not a new story. What we need to talk yeah. about is the emotions that are associated with that. And the easiest way to express that in a way that can reach others is in a very attractive, pretty package so that they can go on this journey with us and it makes it easier for them to confront their own issues. Yeah. It's so funny that you say that, you know, um, the movie men came out earlier this summer and uh, sort of around the same time that they dropped the new season of that show, love, death and robots. And I don't know if you've seen men, but the, you know, point is sort of like, Oh, men are evil and always have been and always will be. And there's an episode of, uh, love death and robots with a giant like telepathic killer crab that sort of has the same message and men uh, didn't quite work for me as a story but i love that episode of that show and so i'm like hmm. if it's the same message why not say it with a giant killer crab exactly. <laughs> you know like, sure. if it's the same stuff like make it entertaining in a way that's well i think uh, you know for me as i so i'm i write but not fiction usually you know and not I I tend to be like a documentary personal essay like kind of writer um but what I really love about fiction and horror like reading horror um or watching it and I I was when we were all doing when Sam and I were doing research I read um your story Christy uh, bone to pick and oh. I was in there like so immediately um, for all of our listeners just go on her website and like writings she, it's like she wrote it, it it's like published like 10 years ago I think but um, it's it's really you, 
you'll get into it like very quickly. Like the world building is like really fast and the relationship is really interesting and the horror is awesome. <laughs> like, so I was just, I, I thought I would skim it, but I just like was so super into it. And Thank you. I think the gift that fiction and horror um, gives or speculative fiction or science fiction is that it takes, it, you can talk about real emotions, but it, it feels less scary for the reader to experience them, you know, because it's like, oh, this is not my life, <laughs> so to speak. But then when the emotions come, it's like, oh, wait, but it is my life. <laughs> so, and you <laughs> can kind of deal with it. Yeah, with yeah. crabs or, yeah. or you know, with flesh-eating monsters or whatever. <laughs> like, you know, it's um, – and I, I – I love that. I think it's like, I don't think I have that gift, but I really appreciate it when, um, when other people, <laughs> I just saw Sam. Like, I was trying to wave you I'm away and I completely <laughs> swatted at my microphone. It's okay. <laughs> no, leave it in, leave it in. <laughs> but yeah, so like, Christy, I mean, you were already a super prolific writer um, before you you said that you were at Goddard before we got on the mic. You said you were at Goddard from like 2007, 2009, which is around the time I was there as well. But it, I was at the IMA program. Oh, OK. Um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, you, you know, one of the things that I loved about or, or like that drew me to Goddard was that I could talk about romance and grief and the things that I was going through that I needed to write my way through. Mm -hmm. Even though you were already a super prolific writer <laughs> before you went to Goddard, um, what was it that pulled you there? And what did you work on while you were at Goddard? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I had... Um... I had always been into fiction and mm -hmm. basically what ended up happening to me, just the quick history of how I ended up going to Goddard. I got out of high school. I went to the University of Rhode Island um, and did journalism for a while. Um, but then I, my dad kind of pulled me out of there because he needed me at home. So I never okay. finished. Um, okay. And then I wanted to do like, I, I really always wanted to be like a marine biologist or a volcanologist. I'm very interested in volcanoes mm -hmm. and I'm also very interested in archaeology. So oh, oh. I floated around for a lot of years. Um, I was a volunteer at both Mystic Aquarium and Maritime Aquarium at Norwalk where I not only did husbandry, I, which is taking care of the fish, I also did, you know, docent work tours and educating kids and things like that. Mm. And then um, I was always sort of afraid of volcanoes, so I never really did anything like that. Um, but I did get into archaeology at Norwalk Community College, and I started there. Mm -hmm. And then I hit a point in my life, this was at like 2003, where I was like, you know what, I need to decide what direction I'm going in. I was okay. maybe 32 at the time, I think it was 32. And I'm like, what do I want to do with my life? Like, I'm just bouncing all over the place. I'm writing, I'm doing this, I'm doing 
volcano studies. Like, what do I want? <laughs> and I realized that writing was really the only thing that had been with me and in my blood since I was the tiniest kid. Stories yeah. were just mm. where I was and where I yeah. lived. And so I decided, okay, screw this. I'm going to go back to college. So I went to Burlington College. And okay. I got my, um, which is now defunct, sadly, but I did go to mm. Burlington College. I got my degree in writing and literature. And oh, okay. then someone there, in fact, two people there, two of my mentors said, you know what? They were both Goddard graduates, I believe. And they were like, you need to go to Goddard. Like, wow. do not pass go. Do not wow. $200. Just apply there and go. They'll, I'm, okay. We're pretty confident you can get in. Just go. So I was like, okay. okay. So I applied and I got in. And that's how I ended up at Goddard. Okay. Um, and they had told me that it was really going to be a great experience for me because I would find people like me. I would find passionate, excited people like me. And that mm -hmm. is exactly what Goddard was. Um, mm -hmm. And also, I wanted to work on short stories specifically. And I wanted to work in the darker genres. I wanted to work in horror. I wanted to mm -hmm. work on, I mean, Edgar Allan Poe is really in my wheelhouse. And that's kind mm -hmm. of where yeah. I started um, with mm -hmm. my work. The Unreliable Narrator. I am a huge fan of The Unreliable Narrator. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Poe was really my jam. And Goddard mm -hmm. would allow me to do that. And Goddard would also allow me to explore things that other schools would not. You know, I mean, my my my, uh, my project, my graduate project was ghost stories set in Disney parks. You know, you do that. Yeah. And it's out there. It's I want to read that. Yeah, you can get it. It's called Skeletons in the Swimming Hole. You can get it on Amazon. Oh, my God. Like okay, great. great. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. And, I'll put um, it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Skeletons in the Swimming Hole. And it's ghost stories set at Disney parks. And Amazing. That was where I really started to develop in my fiction the idea that ghost stories were really about the things that haunt us. They are the things that we sure. cannot let go. The guilt that so really my whole idea and the I and the whole point of the Disney book is that it does not matter where you go. You can go to the happy quote happiest place on earth. And, mm. and, but you still go with you, your, mm. those demons are still in you. Those things yeah. that bother you are still there. Mm. Right. And that came out of that idea came out of, um, you know, my parents with my mom being so sick and my house kind of going downhill. You can imagine it was being run by a 15 year old who could barely keep her shit together. So there's that we would go to Disney every year, even when my mom was sick. Oh, wow. Maybe okay. we'd only go for two days, but see, my grandmother lived in Daytona, so we could go uh -huh. down and see mm. my grandmother for a week or whatever, and we could just drive over to Disney. Yeah, Disney was the only place that my family felt normal, mm. that people weren't yelling, that people okay. weren't so sad. I mean, you know, my house was sad. Like when we went yeah. to go tear that, you know, when we after my dad died and we went to go deal with that house. I mean, you could walk into that house and just feel the sorrow in the fucking walls. Like yeah. that whole thing on Ghost Hunters where they talk about 
uh, well, my husband was a ghost hunter and an occult specialist um, who, who had his own TV oh, show oh and everything like that. Okay, okay. So, yeah, so he, yeah, this is a whole different, that's a whole, yeah, whole show and it's um, Oh, my goodness. But, uh, you know, he used to talk about the theory of transference, you know, and the idea sure. of the residual haunting, which if you watch yeah. that old show, Ghost Hunters, or you're into the paranormal, you know what that means. It means that something gets stuck in yeah. the material or in the place or in the grounds mm -hmm. and it just mm -hmm. repeats itself like a tape mm -hmm. and boy you could feel it in that house you could feel mm -hmm. it and it was so mm -hmm. odd because when we ripped down all of the they basically had to gut the house and in fact the okay. story that's coming up in out of time which is called floor song tango true paranormal experiences wow. um that is about my journey with that house in that there definitely was something supernatural going on there. But because my parents, to their credit, were also born again Christians, they were like, no, that's not, you know, oh, that that wailing you heard. Yeah, that was nothing. That was the wind. Mm. That's not. Nope. you don't deal with that. Oh, that door. Oh, that dark shadow. That was a trick of the light. Just stop that. Kristen, stop it. Your imagination is just, you have an overactive imagination. Stop it. You know what though? I'm so grateful that they brainwashed me because honestly, and I, my sister, when I was working on this creative nonfiction piece for this anthology, my sister and I spent a whole week just talking about our experiences in that house. Yeah. And it was hilarious because we didn't realize that we had had the same experiences because it wasn't, we just didn't talk about it. Yeah. And like Missy would be like, oh, yeah, I'd go in the kitchen and like all the cabinet doors would be open. I'd be like, oh, wow, that was a weird breeze that came through here. Maybe I should go close the window. <laughs> like, yeah, that's literally right. what we thought. We didn't think yeah. anything of it. And when we started cataloging all of these experiences, my sister was like, thank God they had us so brainwashed. Can you imagine how terrified we yeah. would have been? Oh God, yeah. like, we would have been like these people on the TV shows, you know, yeah. but I think it's because we just basically ignored it that whatever yeah. was there didn't victimize us too much further than that because it couldn't, we were just mm -hmm. like, we're not afraid of whatever it is. Oh, wow. That was weird. Oh yeah. The windows open. Oh wow. Somebody slammed the door. Oh, what were those footsteps? Oh, it was probably the cat. You know, we didn't even have yeah. a fucking cat at the time, but I don't know, maybe a cat got in the house. I mean, literally that's what we used to do. Wow. So I think, um, and I forgot where I was going with that, uh, whole train of thought, but I think that's what Goddard taught me to do. That's what we were talking about. Mm. Goddard taught me to really be pushed. Um, you know, I studied when I was with my, I studied with Rachel, Rachel Pollock and I studied under Jeannie Mackin. Oh. Wow. And I was really fucking lucky because, man, yeah. you can't get better than those two women. They are amazing. Um, and it was both of them, particularly Jeannie. Uh, Rachel pushed me in areas of genre. And Rachel okay. forced me to explore genre like I had never looked at genre before. It was Rachel who really started to get me to think about genre as metaphor. Hmm. Okay. It was Jeannie who got me to start thinking about um, fiction in an emotional context and how you have mm, to have mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that emotional connection. And her books are amazing. Like Jeannie's work is amazing. If you haven't read 
I'm embarrassed now because there's one book that she wrote that I cannot remember the title of that I will try to find, <laughs> but it's a ghost story and it is a novel and I'm going to maybe try to hop on Amazon dot right now and see if I can get the title of it because it's awesome. Like, and, wow. and it is about, it, it's just an awesome, awesome book. And, and I recommend, I recommend it to anyone who loves a good ghost novel um, mm -hmm. because Jeannie doesn't get the attention that I feel that she deserves. She just doesn't like this book is so powerful. Um, and I should have the name of it for you in a minute. Uh, it's called the sweet by and by the sweet oh. by and the by, sweet by okay. and by by Jeannie Mackin. It is a wonderful, okay. wonderful book. And, and I can't recommend it enough. And awesome. so that is, is why I'm really grateful that I went there. But the whole reason I was referred was because there were professors from Burlington telling me, we went mm -hmm. there, you need to go there too. You are a potentially good match for mm -hmm. Goddard. And, mm -hmm. and I, they were absolutely right. Um, I also mm -hmm. was lucky enough when I got there, I served as editor in chief for the Pitkin Review. Yes. Um, for two semesters. And that really laid the groundwork for, all of the anthologies and magazines that I have curated since. Um, yeah. I really learned about curation and, and just being thrown into it. Like mm. I remember the first meeting and I was like, well, how does this run? Cause I had no idea. And they just put all this stuff in front of me and I go, okay, this is a mess <laughs> and we're not doing it like this anymore. Like we're not, we're yeah. going to do something totally different. But fortunately I did have project organizing skills from my day job. Okay. So I was able, and, and from having done plays, I did a lot of plays. I was mm. a stage oh, okay. manager for a lot of years. Oh, oh that'll so do it. I yeah. had, say, I had say the no organizational more. skills. <laughs> and so I said, okay, well, if this were a play, I ran a play company when I was at the University of Rhode Island, um, wow. cool. where we did history plays and whatever. And so I would do the whole thing from the ground up, everything, costumes, mm -hmm. the whole thing. So those skills, I was able to come in and apply that to something I had never done, which was mm -hmm. a magazine. And, and wow, that was a blast. And, and I remember just thinking, I learned so much. I made a lot of little mistakes along the way you do because it's the first time you're doing it, but I learned a lot. And I'm really grateful because there is no way that I would be doing things like 34 Orchard or the anthologies mm -hmm. now if if I hadn't had those experiences. And also Goddard, like I said, I'd always been labeled, I think before we were recording, as a mm -hmm. really intense, passionate person. And I was always sort of looked on as that's really scary. That's that's really too much, you know. Even that guy who was that f psychology philosophy major, you know, my first love, he said, oh, my God, you're yeah. so intense. I can't sometimes I can't with you, <laughs> you know, fair enough, fair enough. But I didn't I always had looked upon that as a negative until I got to Goddard mm -hmm. and I met a whole bunch of people who were just as intense and passionate as I was mm -hmm. about yeah, whatever, mm -hmm. you know, it didn't matter if they were writing about whatever they were writing about. They, it didn't matter mm -hmm. whether they were poets or whatever they were into. I just found my peeps and I was like, oh my yeah. God, I'm not a freak and I can yeah. do all of this. And it's just that at home, I'm not necessarily surrounded by that level of intensity. And that's why I scare a lot of people, mm. but these people didn't think I was scary at all. 
They were like, <laughs> the crazier the better. Like, whatever. Yeah. You want to drink all day? Okay, let's do it. Like, right. <laughs> well, I think everybody's intense in their own way. And you find people who are on your wavelength of intensity at Goddard, you know, like the people who say that you're intense for being outspoken, maybe intensely introverted or whatever, you know, like everybody yep. has their thing. So you just find the people who are on that wavelength, whatever it is at Goddard. And I remember the first time I set foot on campus, I felt it immediately. Like I stepped out of yeah. my car and I was one of the first people to arrive for the residency. And I just like, you know, nobody was around. I didn't know anything about the campus yet, but I was just like, this place is going to change my life. Like I felt it immediately. Um, so I don't know if it was that immediate for you at Goddard, but that was definitely my well, experience. Like It's interesting because I pulled into the dorm and as extroverted as I typically am, um, mm -hmm. there is a side of me that is very introverted. I think in all writers we are, sure. yeah. but because right. of the way I was, you know, like I said, my mom was a junior mitt, Connecticut's junior mitt. She was a beauty queen. She was incredibly yeah. social. She threw these, but when she was healthy, she threw these amazing parties and, you know, and things like, you know, that what I have left of her that I honor and cherish and still use to this day are all of her like little beauty tips and little, you know, mm -hmm. her little hacks that she taught me when I was way too young to understand. But I think that's because she was dying and she wanted to make sure yeah. I had this information. But also, I'm glad that I was young because it's it's really true. The things you remember when you're younger like if she had told me this stuff when I was in my forties, I would have forgotten it all. Like, you know, but right. because yeah. if I was so young, you know, things like you should always have 90 days worth of panties. Cause you might be too busy to do the laundry. <laughs> you know, I, to this wow. day, I have 90 pairs of panties and people are like, are you yeah. crazy? I'm like, dude, I only do my laundry every three months. And my mom was right. I don't have time. Like, wow. it's like, it's like, that's fine. Oh no, I have two pairs left. Okay. Here's my choice. Go buy more or go do the laundry. Well, I have loads of clothes. I'm a clothes horse. So, you know what? I'll just go to the store and buy some more, like, so I can get through another couple of months or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, my thing is, is that because of that, I got that from her. And still, I, because I was picked on as a kid, because I was different, I was always nervous about meeting people and going into new situations like many of us are. So mm -hmm. I pull up at Goddard. I got this car full of crap and I walk into the dorm. And I hear voices down the hall and I, I, I felt like, okay, I don't know who these people are. I better be on my best behavior. So I walk in and it's this, this person, young James Kenny, who's a writer, teaches it. Mm -hmm. I think he still teaches at one of the CUNYs in New York. He teaches drama and screenwriting. He's an amazing, I mean, he's amazing. Oh, cool. You ought to take one of his classes wow. in film. It's crazy. Yeah. And then awesome. um, Megan Guidry. Um okay. And uh, she had just lost both of her parents. Wow. So I walk in and I, I go in and I say, hi, I'm Kay. Because that's the name I was going by at the time. Kay, K-A-Y-E. It's a nickname. Some people know me as that. Some people know me as Chris. It's a long story, whatever. So I cool. said, hi, I'm Kay. <laughs> and they're like, oh, hi, how are you? And I see Jimmy pull out a thing of whiskey. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's 1130 in the morning and he's just yeah, like yeah. pouring his whiskey in this, this, it was whatever in this cup. And I was like, Oh, are we drinking? <laughs> and Megan goes, yeah. She's like, you know, my mom and dad just like died last month. So I'm into drinking. I go, I have a dead mother too. She goes, Oh, what kind of wine do you like? I'm like red. She goes, Oh, I got a bunch of it. Let's go drink. And I was like, that's it. I'm home. 
In those five minutes, I had bonded with, um, and of course, they told me about themselves before we got into that little bit, but I felt instant. That is the moment when I knew I was home. They yeah. accepted yeah. me immediately. They didn't think I was weird. They didn't, they were like, oh, like when Megan said, oh, I have a dead mother too, I was like, oh, God, I'm all set. Like, I'm all set. <laughs> And, that, and that's kind of funny because people don't, you know, I talk so irreverently about that, but the reality is when you have a mom who has passed away when you're young, mm-hmm. there's something very special about that. It's, it's, it, you almost can be irreverent about it in some ways with each other because you have to be, or you lose your mind. You know what I mean? You can't get so sucked up into that. And, and it's sort of like, you didn't, you know, you, you don't have her guidance so much. You're never going to really get to know her as a person on the other side in your adulthood. Um, And I'm not saying that other older women don't step in because they always do. You know, there's always older women around that'll help you out. Your friends' moms are great. Even your friends themselves are great. Um, I never got my ears (laughs) pierced because I was afraid. I was afraid. I didn't want to go get my ears pierced without my mommy. Okay. Mm. I was 30. The girls that I work with in the office, who, by the way, I still work with to this day said, Oh, for your 30th birthday, we're taking you to piercing pagoda in the mall. We're getting your ears pierced. And it was like the most magical thing. So, you know, Mm. you do have those times where people will step in and play the role of mother for you. Mm. But when somebody says I have a dead mother too, and whatever, that's just an instant connection because it infers all of that trauma and all of that understanding and all of that. Mm. You don't have to talk about it. You just automatically Mm, know. And it is kind of a very special little club. It's almost like a sisterhood. And I honestly wouldn't trade it. I miss my mom. I miss her every day, you know, but supernaturally, I always sort of know she's around too. She lets me know she's around, you know, (laughs) I could tell you I believe that. I believe that people linger, you know, like their spirits linger. Like you were talking about residual haunting earlier. Yeah, I 100% believe that places and spaces and land carry spirit and trauma (laughs) they do and you know it's like it's funny because my mom will typically what I like to call give me signs okay and Mm -hmm, there are mm -hmm. a lot of fascinating uh, studies out there about whether or not these are manifestations of ourselves you know, and our own wish fulfillment that we believe these people are still with us because it makes our grief easier to deal with Mm -hmm. Um, or whether this is actually real. So in other words, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a pagan too. So I do believe in signs and spirits and witchcraft and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's interesting is I can tell when a dress is a dress and when a dress is a sign from my mother. You know, mm-hmm. or that when it's my mom saying hi, I know the difference. Here's a good mm-hmm. example. So I find out I'm getting a reading spot at Necronomicon Providence, which yeah. is coming up. I am so excited. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God, so few people get readings and I'm going ah, to get one. And this amazing. is awesome. So, so I'm cool. like, okay. So then I start thinking, oh shit, this is my big moment. I'm a dress girl. I have tons of dresses. I am a dress whore. You can't, I love dresses. I just will always have mm-hmm. tons and tons of dresses. And I'm like, okay. 
Chrissy, you need to control yourself. You know, you have lots of fabulous dresses in your closet. You should pick mm-hmm. something. So I'm kind of <laughs> laying there in bed, going to bed that night, so excited I can't sleep. And I'm like, mom, um, can you just kind of, you know, help me like guide me in the right dress or to the right dress or put it in my head? I was like, okay, thanks. Fully expecting that I'll figure it out or something will pop into my head, whatever. Because sure. I do ask her sometimes. I'm like, mom, help me, whatever. So I'm drifting off to sleep. Nothing's coming in my head. And then my phone is charging next to my bed and it dings and it's a Facebook thing. And I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm not sleeping anyway because I'm so excited. Like I had just found out an hour before, right? So I'm all wild up and now I got to go to work the next day and I'm not going to get any sleep. So whatever. So I was like, (laughs) all right, I'll just go see what's going on on Facebook. So I pick up my phone. I click on the little thing that says, you know, somebody left you a comment or whatever it was and an ad pops up instead mm-hmm. oh and it God. is a picture of this dress and it says flash sale ending in two hours the 68 dollars dress is 30 dollars whoa it is in Amazing. my size on hot topic which is where i always buy my dresses so i trust them and in <laughs> addition it is this cage cut on top, which I have tops of that I like. It's a very specific type of design on the top that I like, that I have mm-hmm. shirts that match. Okay. And it's a high-low on the bottom, which shows my legs. And my mom always said, you have really nice legs. Don't you ever cover them up? And I started laughing. Uh, and I could almost amazing. hear in my head her going, oh, no, you're not wearing stuff you've already worn. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's the beauty queen in her, right? <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Beauty needs a new you dress. dress. Yeah. Beauty yeah. needs a new dress. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so then I'm like, that. thanks, mom. So I go online, I buy the dress. It arrived the yeah. other day, actually, yesterday, or Friday it arrived. I buy the uh-huh. dress. And then I'm like, hmm. I need to do earrings. What kind of earrings should I wear? I want something that goes with the story. Now I'm at work and I'm like, okay, I know I have tons of earrings and the story I'm going to read is about dinosaur ghosts. So I'm like, okay, thank you. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, it would be cool if I had something like dinosaur-y, but ghosty, whatever. So I'm sitting at work, I'm doing my thing and a Facebook ad pops up on my phone. I didn't think anything of it. And I go look at it and it's a freaking ad for these two, it's like Tyrannosaurus Rex skulls, but they're like silver. And I was like, Whoa. Okay, mom. Uh, I'll buy those too. So <laughs> I those too. That's awesome. But in those particular, in that, in the, in that case, in that particular case, whatever you choose to believe, whether this is yeah. something that comes from our own brain that we manifest on our own, or whether you believe it's supernatural, I just found that really weird. Like I was like, mm-hmm. okay, that is weird. It's almost like she's yeah. saying, no, now you need So now I'm just waiting for shoes. I'm like, hmm, I wonder if she'll <laughs> find me shoes on sale. I almost hear her coming to do that's going too far. Amazing. You, you should probably check shoes. your son. You <laughs> <laughs> shoes, Kristen. You don't need any more shoes. Yeah. <laughs> so. Amazing. No, I do I think there's that. something magical about algorithms like that, you know, because it yep. like, it it knows that the algorithm, whatever, knows that you're looking for a dress, but there's something else in there, I think, that makes yes. it that dress at that time. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like, I, I always talk about that with, like, putting songs on shuffle. Like, anytime I pull up Spotify and I put it on shuffle, yeah. I'm like, okay, what what am I doing? You know, who's talking? Yep. 
Um, And so even though it feels sort of like this electronic thing, I do, I'm a firm believer that there's something else in there that talks through it as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. that's, that's why I said like, oh my God, so loudly when you were like, I saw an ad because I was like, oh, I totally (laughs) that. (laughs) Well, and I did write a short story called eavesdropping um, that's in the second Mm -hmm. person that will be in my new collection in 2024. I've decided to save it for that about a girl who's kind of driven crazy by her phone like listens to her and knows Mm -hmm. what she's Mm -hmm. doing and of course it it does deal with grief because in the end you know her phone basically tells her something that she has been avoiding because it is it is um it is unreliable narrator even though it's second person i like Mm -hmm. second person if it's done well it can be very powerful if it's done well the problem Mm -hmm. with second person which for those listeners who may not know, that means you, like you go do mm-hmm. this. Like if any of you read the choose your own adventure books as a kid out oh, there, yes. then you know yes, what that is, Love it. but yeah. it's hard to yeah. pull off because yeah. it's got to be short. You've got to build the tension. You can't have like a whole, it's really tough to do. It's, yeah. but I do like it. And I, I always make sure that in 34 Orchard, I publish at least one, if not two oh, okay. second person. Cool. I'm one of the few markets I've seen at least right now that, is is really into it a lot of editors don't like it but i understand why because it's mm-hmm. hard you get you do get a lot of second person stories that don't that really kind of don't hit the mark you know so it is tough so speaking of 34 orchard which we have mentioned a couple of times um and you were talking about being editor of pick and review mm-hmm. um how how did your experience at pick and review shape your taste or curation abilities um, as you went on to found 34 Orchard? That is a great question. And that's really incredibly relevant because Pitkin Review, what I learned at Pitkin Review is that aside from the creative piece of putting together a journal, a magazine, or an anthology. There is a very intuitive piece to that in mm-hmm. that you sort of have to be like, okay, uh, I want this story. This story fits with what I'm doing. This story speaks to me. This story will work well with this poem I've already purchased. That's the mm-hmm. intuitive piece. Mm-hmm. And then once you get all your work purchased, a theme emerges from that. You know, you don't necessarily, this is why people say to me, oh, do you put themes out for 34 Church? No, I don't. Right. Mm -hmm. I let the work come to me and then the work sort of tells me what it's about, which is what I write Mm -hmm. my introduction on. That's intuitive. Yeah. And Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Daniel Perlman at URI taught me that. He said, never force Mm -hmm. it. Just throw all the shit together and it will tell you what it wants to talk about. Because things yeah. have multiple themes too. It's not like, of course, you know, they always say, "Oh, a short story has one theme or a novel." No, my ass. They can all have as many themes as you want. It's just, can yeah. you support it? You know, my dad, the English teacher, used to say, "Well, if you can support whatever you think it is, and you can find enough evidence to back it up, nobody can tell you you're wrong." And he was right. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to say that feels like the ninth grade thing of like, okay, how can yep. you identify a theme? But now, like as adults, how do you move? how do you use that as a platform to spring off and talk about the many themes a piece can have and the many lives it can have among different readers and stuff. It's not like 
here's the of mice and men is about you know whatever yeah. um, it's but, only about this one thing yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. it's the reader experience and and the yeah. experience a reader brings to that which we can talk about that in a second but to get back to her question about pet can pick and review mm. what i learned is the other half of running a journal a magazine or an anthology is actually strictly process it is okay. process it is deadline it is mm -hmm. things go in a very specific order you mm -hmm. have to do this first then you have to do this next then and almost without exception and you can't do these things out of order because mm -hmm. if you do it it messes with the flow and that's and that's where things get screwed up Right. Okay. Like the first thing for 34 Orchard that I had to do was, OK, I need a website. I need submission guidelines. Mm -hmm. I need an email address and I need to figure out the process for reading these submissions. Yeah. How am I going to get this to people to share the reading responsibility with me? What are we going to do a submissions manager? Like so I had to figure all that out first. Then you mm -hmm. put out a call. Then you get out all the work and you do your acceptances and your rejections. Then you send out the contracts. Like it all goes in an order. Mm -hmm. And that is what Pitkin taught me. Pitkin, mm -hmm. because the unique thing about Pitkin is that we were all in an MFA program that was small mm -hmm. and we all knew each other. Mm -hmm. So we had to do things blind mm -hmm. because okay. otherwise okay. it was hurtful. Yeah. Right. So I had to build a program where I approached someone I thought, and, and some of it's casting too. Like if you're working with a staff, it's casting. You, like my mom who used to cast shows, you know, she used to say, look, you just know the person for the job when you see them. There are mm -hmm. people that are good at certain jobs and you have to reach out with your intuition and figure out who's good at what and then put that person in that job. I yeah. had, I found someone who was amazing. She wanted to be an editor, but she really didn't want to do any reading, but she was really good at process and very good at detail. And I said, would you like to be the submissions editor? She went, what does okay. that mean? I said, that means everything <laughs> comes to you and you take everybody's names and info off it. And then you send it out to the people who need to read it. She not only loved that job, she was an ace at it. She was perfect. And it allowed her to participate, but she didn't have to do the scary part that she was not comfortable with, which was rejecting yeah. people. She didn't want right. to do that. And I said, this is a perfect way. And it was a big job. I mean, honestly, yeah. that was a huge job. I mean, I had a big job as editor in chief, but that's an even bigger job. I didn't want that. I'm like, great. Good luck. Have fun. I don't want to do that. And a lot of people didn't want to do it. She loved yeah. it and she was great at it. And, and, you know, so that was how Pitkin really informed me because I learned a million different ways to do things. And, but that in the end, you, what it boils down to is an ordered process that you cannot screw up. You mm -hmm. cannot put mm -hmm. the cart before the horse. Things have to go in order. You get, if you, if you don't do that, and if you don't adhere to the deadlines you set for yourself, you're sunk. Yeah. Yeah. Because because also at Pitkin, we had limited time to get this out. Yeah. Sure. You know, you couldn't just be like, oh, well, send it whenever. No, you have a three-week window, and that's what we need. And then by this date, I have to have all this stuff done. And by this date, I have to have all this stuff done. 
And so Pitkin was wonderful practice because then I started a magazine with someone else right after I graduated Goddard called Read Short Fiction. And we did that for, for, for a number of years. That was an online, it was very kind of new at that time to do an online date. Like, it's not like now where there's 50,000 of them, you know, back then there was, there weren't very many, but it taught me how to, and that's what eventually gave me the courage to do 34 Archer because I was like, dude, if I did retro fiction, I can do this. If I did Pitkin, Hmm. I can do this. If I did the ink stains anthology, I can do this because Hmm. I had learned that process at Pitkin. And it was mm-hmm. trial by fire. And thank God I had co-editors that were also super smart and super good at organizing because we would have meetings. One of them I'm still friends with to this day. We talk all the time. Cindy Mady, mm-hmm. she was wonderful. And she was like, mm-hmm. no, there's a problem here. We got to fix it. What's this? No, that's a kink in the work. And so the three of us were able to work together to figure out a flow that worked. So it wasn't just yeah. all me coming in and being like, We're, you know, no. I mean, it was definitely collaborative. And that also taught me how to be collaborative with others. So I could mm-hmm. make compromises and change mm-hmm. things and see where there were sure. problems. Mm-hmm. So um, so bef- I think it was before we started recording because we had a very rich conversation before we started recording. And you'll never hear it, listeners. But, Sorry. Uh, <laughs> oh, well. No, no, no. I'm just teasing. Um, I'm teasing them because uh, they don't get to hear it. But I will try to uh, bring some of it back. When we were talking about 34 Orchard, there's not a particular, like, you're not saying you can only submit if you write in this genre or this whatever, you know. Um, You were talking more about vibe with submissions, like that's what you're looking for. So can you can you talk a little bit more about that? Like what what is the not not what is the kind of vibe? Because that was the whole idea. (laughs) The whole idea is that it's indefinable. But um, yeah, just kind of like your reading process and. Um, Sure. Yeah, I do remember that conversation. Um, (laughs) What we were talking about, and I think it was good information, particularly to those listeners out there who may be writers and and are submitting their work. Um, Any magazine will have what's called a vibe. And it is often undefinable. You can't put a word to it. It's just you read something and you know that it vibrates with you, right? Which is where vibrate comes from. And that it sort of vibrates with the other work that you have or that it just talks to you in that certain way. It's hard because when you see guidelines, they'll say things like, we like anything dark in any genre. And 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 then, okay, well, that honestly, that's very vague, but there is no way to really just say, this is exactly what we want because there's that piece, right? You're not in an editor's head. So there's that piece that you don't really know what it is they're looking for. And yet they can't really tell you themselves because, and that's legitimate because they don't know it. They just literally know it when they see it, they go, this is right for us. And so I had a professor once who said to me again, Dan Perlman, brilliant man, who said, you know, never, ever, ever give up on a piece of work until you've sent it out to 30 different places, mm-hmm. 30 places. Wow. Because somebody in those 30, it's going to resonate with that place. Mm-hmm. I myself have never gotten as high as 30 
before yeah, I sold I think the my piece. top is 18. I was trying to yeah. think about that earlier. You know, I don't think I've ever hit 30. Uh, I mean, for longer projects, you know, when I was like looking for an agent, I definitely hit 30. Yeah. <laughs> but for shorts, um, you know, they tend to circulate a little bit better. Yeah, I would I would apply this to short stories and poetry. I definitely would not okay. apply this yeah. to agents or to novels because that's a whole different that mm. really is a different process. Yeah. Um, or plays too, you know, because that's a too, lot yeah. that goes into that. But anyway. yeah, it's different. But for short stories and poetry, you should always hit 30 markets. And one of the things was, you know, when Dan was sending out a lot of his work, um, I'm going back to the 80s and the 70s and the early 90s. Um, I'm showing my age here. Uh, I'm in my 50s. <laughs> but um but yeah, he would send out, um, you know, work. And that was in the days when everything was done through the U.S. Postal Service, right? So you'd print out this manuscript and you'd stick it in an envelope and you would include a self-addressed stamped envelope so the editors could stick the supply in there, the, the reply in it, like yes or no, and mail it back to you. There was no email. Like this was how you did it. In addition, this idea of simultaneous submissions being a common thing is only been common for the last, I don't know, 15 or, you know, 18 years or so. It mm -hmm. really has not been that common. Where it really started to explode, I want to say, was around 2009, 2010. Mm -hmm. That was when I remembered it really becoming it was okay to simultaneously submit to just about everywhere. Do you remember but why? Like what happened in that shift or... Well, I think it's because we had the rise of the electronic magazine, right? Okay. Back in the late 90s, um, there was the internet, okay? But very few people had home email. Like, I was one of the right. people that had internet access at home, and, yeah. and my own email address in, like, 1997. Why? Yeah. Because my housemate was in IT at the time, and hmm. he – so he had, like, you know, the big – you know, the HP in the house and this giant server and all this oh shit, gosh, you know? Yeah. yeah. So we had that, but many people didn't. Around that time, the late 90s and the 2000s, there were a handful. And when I say handful, I mean, I don't know how many. There might have been a couple of hundred, but who knows? I don't know exactly how many of electronic publications. Publications mm -hmm. that were online that would accept things via email or yeah. you could mail them in through the postal service too at that time and they would answer you via email but you had to have email mm -hmm. these grew out of the old web rings do you guys remember web rings or forums or any of those things okay um, probably not you might yeah, be too young i don't yeah. know uh, well, I <laughs> I had I had email in the '90s because I was in college in the late okay, '90s, yep. like mm -hmm. um, so at college um, at Pace University, like I had my email address um, and the web. What I I can't remember what web rings is, but it like was is it like the like the different groups or like listservs? Yeah, I was on a bunch of listservs. Yeah, I wasn't on many of those, but they were like yeah. basically places you could go on the internet. And I'm going somewhere with this, but like fan yeah. fiction. A lot of these okay. web, like particularly for the X Files, there was a million of them for X Files oh fan yeah, fiction. Okay, mm -hmm. and so that around that time, so right, people would go on to these things and they would post fan fiction, mm -hmm. and and then 
right around that time, I guess somebody got the idea that, hey, we can do an online magazine. Um, I Like Monkeys was an early one. Um, Afternoon was an early one, which I was in, actually. And what's really scary is they're still online now. Adirondack Review was another one that was online. Cool. Um, and my stories are still up there. Those websites are 23, 22 years old, and the stuff is still up there. You can go read it. Um, wow. Links on my page. I love that. But, you know, very <laughs> simple, whatever. But also at that time, if your work was published online, it was not considered a legitimate credit for your right. CV. It was considered, oh, you're online. Ugh, that doesn't count. That's not. It's got to be paper, you know. Wow. Right, and right. so the evolution of how this has changed so basically, that was around, I want to say, 2000, 2001. And mm. then the world changed because of 9-11. Mm. And people started and the internet started to grow. I mean, not that it wasn't common already, but it was getting more and more and more and more common. And then right around 2007, eight, right around the time we were at Goddard, that was when there, there were even more online magazines. And so because of that, because it was no longer most of it done through the postal service, they would do it through email, which made everything faster, which yeah. meant that they really had to allow simultaneous submissions because people could answer you quicker. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, right? So it's like, okay, well, but if they can email this to me, that means they can email it to six other people and right. I mm -hmm. have to go fast if I want this. And so yeah. that's why mm -hmm. I think we saw I I'm I'm not an expert. This is just what I lived through, so I think about it often and I think why simultaneous submissions started to become a thing was because there was email and because it was faster right because when you were just so mailing it out through the post office I mean my Dan God rest his soul he's dead now so he can't get in trouble or he can't none of his <laughs> co cohort can be pissed for for him saying this but he used to say look they all want this exclusively. You mail it out and it disappears and you don't hear anything for a year, a year and a half, two yeah. years. Yeah. If if it doesn't get if the response doesn't get lost in the mail, if the yeah. the manuscript you sent doesn't get lost in the mail and you say, fuck them, just send it all out at once. Just send it all out yeah. to 30 places at once. How the hell are they going to know? What are they going to go to the post office and see what you mailed? No, they don't know. Yeah. And by the time they yeah. get back to you. So there were waiting times of sometimes a year, two years. And these magazines wanted them exclusively. And two he used to say years. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. That was normal. That yeah. was normal. If you had a place that sent you back something within three months, that was like, wow, that was so fast. And Dan used to say to me, what are you going to do? Sit around and wait until you're dead? Yeah. Like, yeah, because right. they would want you to send it out and then wait for a reply. Okay, so then I get my reply a year later. Now I send it somewhere else and wait another year. He used to go, fuck that. Just send it all out simultaneous. And he said Smart. to me, <laughs> he did say to me, listen, I'm telling you right now, when the internet explodes, there's going to be a lot of magazines and you're not going to have to worry about this anymore because simultaneous submissions will become a thing. And he was absolutely right. So yeah. I yeah. think it was, that's why we have SimSubs.
And even now I notice the process is getting faster and faster. Like writers are expecting that. And, you know, honestly, you got to just take a breather listeners. Like if, if a place says we normally get back to you in three days, it's okay to query in a week, but like, don't freak them out. You know, your story might be being held. Like right now I still have 150 stories that I need to go through that I've, that I'm considering for future issues. It's going to take me a little while to get through that. You know, I don't want to just be like, oh, you know, uh," you know, every story deserves time, but still, I'm still a pretty fast market considering, Mm -hmm. you know, there's some that are six, eight months. Yeah. I think you emailed me back like within two or three weeks and like thinking about that compared to a year and the you know I, I feel anxious about like oh did my email get lost in the ether and like mm-hmm. having mm-hmm. perhaps the only copy of your story somewhere out there and just <laughs> hoping that it made it to wherever you've sent it you know it's just so nerve-wracking like yeah I can't yeah. imagine you know my yeah. very first short story submission ever was in ninth grade and I sent off a very confident paper copy to Asimov you know um and Aww. uh got a rejection back like six months later in the mail um but that was my only experience with a mail submission yeah. and the thought of like doing that constantly for a career is just so like nerve-wracking yeah yeah it makes my chest feel weird just <laughs> saying it, you know? <laughs> no. um but like um yeah so that's just so crazy to think about um and hearing you say all this i'm like well of course like why did i think that it was just because it's been this way for the last 15 years, you know, why did I not think about what it was before? And so it's interesting hearing you talk about the, that transition, you know? Yeah. I and, remember and- looking at that, like looking at like writer's market and stuff yes, uh, when I was yep. like doing like poetry and um, other like, you know, personal history or like personal essay memoir pieces um, and like just pouring over the big book book that website like of writer's market and like at barnes and noble because i didn't want to buy it because then i would have to buy it it again the next year you know like so then like just like writing down in like my journal like oh i can do this but most of them it's like no simultaneous submissions because this period is probably 2004 2005 like that's about right um, yeah yeah so uh but it's like no simultaneous no simultaneous I'm like well okay so then you have to like make a decision like and and I and you know it probably did save the editors some time (laughs) like because you like I wasn't submitting everywhere because I didn't want to waste the postage and for for a you know journal that didn't you know, it didn't fit and stuff. So, but, um, but yeah, so the internet, <laughs> it's like, yeah, we really you know, do anyway, take it for granted. Very helpful. Yeah. yeah good we job, take internet. It for granted. <laughs> yeah. We really do. And like, I would, I always bought the writer's market because I would abuse that yeah. thing because I yeah, would yeah. do what Dan mm-hmm. told me. He used to say, I don't care if it says no simultaneous, do it anyway. What are they going to do? Kill you? Right. He goes, right. and yeah. I mean, Dan was Kill an older you. man, you know, he <laughs> yeah. was in his, I don't know how old he was when I was training under him, but you know, when he passed away, he was like in his, I think, 80s or late 70s. And he used to say to me, you know, listen, I have been doing this. I mean, he was an Ezra Pound yeah. scholar. He he was wow. a big dude. And he said, I have been doing this my entire life. Never in my life has anybody said 
two publications want the same story. So don't worry about it. Just mm. and that was when he kind of taught me about vibe and this whole idea yeah. that, you know, this is a crapshoot. And, mm -hmm. and now he would be pleased, I think, to see that there's so much simultaneous out there because it is allowed. Yeah. So yeah. young writers or young in your walk, you have this opportunity, you're allowed to do it, blanket it, send it mm -hmm. out to 30 places <laughs> and the just do it. And the best way to is to make sure you keep track of it. And what I always sure. do is I have a sheet for the story. I write down, I still do it by hand because, you know, I'm a Gen Xer and I still like my paper. So mm -hmm. I write, but some people use Excel spreadsheets and they love mm -hmm. that. I mean, there yeah, is no wrong it. way to keep Color your stuff. Coded. Yeah. Yeah. There's no wrong way to do it, but I'll write down where I sent it. And then in the co and the date, and then in the comments column, mm -hmm. I'll write where I need to withdraw it. Because mm. everyone will say, if you have to withdraw it, send it to this email. Because if somebody comes back and says, we want this, and this has happened to me, I have to get that sheet out and I got to get, the, my life has to stop and I have to withdraw it at every single place as right. fast as possible. Right. Mm -hmm. And I have had two pl places want the same piece at once within mm -hmm. hours mm -hmm. of each other. And then I was sad because I had to tell the second place they couldn't have it because I just gave it to the first place. But oh. that ended up resulting in a sale of a different story because they were like, well, oh my God, what else do you got? Love mm. it. So then Love they that. took this other story. So that was kind of cool. But That's um, awesome. That's super but cool. yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Um, so anyway. In, in your guest submission form, you said there's always something coming out. Like when we asked for promotions, you said there's always something coming out. Oh, yeah, out. there's always so, something coming out, yeah. So, which I <laughs> love and um, think is amazing. Um, but obviously, if you've listened this far, listeners, um, you can see that Christy works her ass off. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> to, to get shit done. Um, is there a piece of writing that you would like to promote right now? Um, and if not, is there, looking back, is there a favorite thing that you have published, Ooh. that you've written and published? Oh, boy. Okay. Or both. You or both, or both. <laughs> well, I do have, as I said, for those of you out there who like the paranormal, um, there is that collection out of time, which is coming up in October. That is right. not just me, but a bunch of other writers telling their personal ghost stories. Um, it is published Love by that. Timber Ghost Press. They are a wonderful press. They're doing a lot with cosmic Western horror and all kinds of really great stuff. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. Cody uh, C.R. Langill. Um, yeah. Cody Langill. He's awesome. Uh, just they're an awesome person. But yeah, so you can go and check that out. Um, that's coming out in October. There is my collection called The Shadows Behind, which is always available um, on Amazon or you can find me on my website. And I would like to promote that because that really has a lot of very different each story is different or at least that's what I've been told so there should be an, something appealing for everyone in there um, mm -hmm. it doesn't sound all the same so there is that there is also a short ebook um, it's a novelette called this poisoned ground 
uh, that Ooh. I wrote many years ago. And it's very, if you like Edgar Allan Poe, like Legia and stuff, you might like that. That is definitely a Poe piece um, or a Poe, you know, in that vein. It's unreliable narrator. It's got some interesting things going. Although I do believe it's in the third person. That's the only thing that's in the third person. Um, but there's supposed to be a sequel to that coming out called These Wicked Walls. Yeah, well, I haven't started Whoa. that yet. So, oh. um, yeah, so <laughs> yeah. I haven't so, started that yet. So don't get excited. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if you want to go read that and see if that's your speed, I believe it's only like 99 cents or $1.99. Um, or if you just want to contact me through my website, you can do the contact page and I'll send you the PDF via email. I don't care just email me it's fine or like i said there's a contact page on my website so anybody can just contact me through there it comes directly to me through my email and then there's 34 orchard coming out in november so but Ooh. there is also if you go to my website and go to the read my work page as amanda had referenced earlier where she had connected with a bone to pick there are a lot of links on that page to stuff that is published online in online literary or horror magazines that is free for you to read. Mm -hmm. um, awesome. So if you want to try me out and see if you like what I do first without paying a dime, you can totally go do that. I also mm -hmm. would like to recommend, like, this is, you were saying a favorite piece Mm -hmm. The favorite thing I wrote is not available yet and won't be available <laughs> oh. for <laughs> what <No>. a teaser. <laughs> However, my most recent favorite that just came out um, mm -hmm. and it was like the fastest acceptance I ever had. I submitted it and with 24 wow. hours, they took it. Um, wow. I finished it. Yeah. I finished it on like Thursday. I submitted on Friday on Saturday morning. I had a, an acceptance. I was really excited. Oh my, amazing. Oh my God. Yeah, that was pretty awesome. I was like, damn. Your heart was, out, Bradbury. <laughs> yeah. I was drinking that day. Let's put it that way. I was like, Oh, <laughs> I had to do. Where's the booze? I'm, I'm set. Um, beware burning snow it's called huh. and it is a short story it is the first short story which i was very honored in a magazine called the siren's call and that is free oh yeah i've heard of those and that, yes and it's free and it's the summer issue summer 2022 issue issue 58 there are like a mm. hundred over a hundred short stories and poems in there by various writers wow. and it is completely free and you can download it as a printable PDF. But my story, Beware Burning Snow, the reason I love that so much is because, as I mentioned earlier, I'm really into volcanoes and volcanic eruptions and all of that. And I had always wanted to write a story that sort of examined, you know, grief through the lens of like Mount St. Helens eruption. Mm -hmm. And okay. so that's what that story is. And it has ash ghosts, ghosts of volcanic ash just mm. spoiler alert but honestly it's in the first line it's so if you sure. read the first line you're gonna know anyway um mm. so yeah so if that if anyone's interested in that you can certainly check that out and um cool. wow. awesome i was gonna i had this whole thing i was gonna share too about like how the architect like because a lot of my work has been called female but not necessarily feminist most of my hmm. stories, just so readers know, are tragic love stories in one way or another, whether they're yeah. romantic or whether they're 
you know, parental or sibling, but they, I do consider them to sort of all be tragic love stories. And I was thinking about that the other day and I'm like, you know, it's really interesting. We talk about the hero rescuing the princess and Mm -hmm. like why princess stories are so popular. And it just hit me. Well, the reason princess stories are so popular is because really doesn't every single one of us just want to be saved every once in a while? Yes, absolutely. That's what it's really about. It's not about like, oh, I'm a princess. I'm helpless. Come save me. It's like, dude, my car just broke down and I really don't want to deal with this. Can somebody else just come in and ride in on a white horse and just fix it? Yeah. Like that's for sure. That's That's so sure. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, I was like, I got to mention that because I literally just figured this out like two days ago. And I was like, oh, that's why I write so much about that type of stuff, too, is because, mm-hmm. you know, I always kind of want to be rescued sometimes. And I think, mm-hmm. I don't know. So that was just a random thought that I had that I thought I would share. <laughs> I agree with that. I, there are definitely times I want to be rescued. I mean, car breaking down mm-hmm. is definitely one of them. <laughs> yeah, it's just human. It's, you know. Yeah. yeah. I just think it's funny that they always think, oh, it's the princess and they're weak women and we got to have these strong princesses. And I'm like, well, that's kind of not actually what that's about. It's it's really <laughs> they just represent the soft side in all of us that we mm-hmm. all want to be saved. Like mm-hmm. there yeah. is no such thing as a weak woman. There, just like mm-hmm. there's no such thing as a weak man. We are complex people. It just yeah. depends on which side of ourselves we want to show at that particular mm-hmm. moment. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. it's like my dad always used to say, okay, I'm going to teach you how to change a tire, but don't be stupid and change your old tire, honey. Get some guy to do it. Why do you want to do that? Really? I'll teach you, <laughs> but I, I, you know, why make yeah. them do it? <laughs> he used to crack me up. He's like, I'll teach you. I'll t-. Like I know how to change my tires. I know, and I can do it and I have done it. But I got to agree. I remembered finishing it and going, oh, dude, next time I'm like, just going to call a pod guy in a tow truck. <laughs> Fuck all this. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's good uh, advice anytime. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't even have to be like that high stakes of like changing yeah. a tire, like making dinner, you know? Sometimes you just want to yeah. be saved from call making dinner. Call the hot guy in a tow yes. truck. <laughs> McDonald's is for. I'm just going to go to McDonald's. I don't want to cook my own dinner. I'm going to save myself from cooking my own meal. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So my husband doesn't listen to this podcast. So (laughs) I can talk about it. (laughs) But he's definitely like, if if anyone has ever read the five love languages or like, you know, seen Instagram things Mm -hmm. about that, you know, his thing is. The way he expresses love is acts of service, and oh, um, that cool. that uh, that works for me. <laughs> <That> <laughs> works. <laughs> it, it does. It's it's um we we just had a baby. Um, oh, congratulations! In January, thank you. Um, so our baby's like six months. Um, a, a little over six months now. He has him like right now. I don't know where and it's fine (laughs) but um yeah like being saved from just having to uh deal (laughs) like yeah is is really nice you know like make dinner is a big one like I Hmm. don't know like the last time I made dinner because like I'm usually holding a uh, baby. (laughs) Well and the other thing too that's interesting like my love language has always been gifts Okay. Like, I'm the person that just sends presents. Like mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. what, that's how I show my love. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But I think it's interesting that you said that about having the baby. First of all, congratulations. And a February baby. Can I ask what day of February? Well, it was actually January 19. Um, um, okay. Yeah, was, I'm February 5th. I was like, oh, maybe he was born on my birthday, which means he'll be uh, cool. Um, <laughs> but I think it's the same sign, though. Like, what is that? Aquarius? No, Aquarius. No, July, uh, January 19th. That yeah. is Capricorn. Capricorn. Oh, Capricorn. Okay. Yeah, because yes, because uh, Aquarius starts. I want to say like just a couple days later, like January, like twenty. It's a little later. Got it. Hmm. Yeah, because okay. right. like, yeah. I'm I'm pretty early in Aquarius. I think I'm yeah. second day con. So I think it starts. Yeah, I'm into tarot. I read tarot too. Um, nice. But yeah. I know. It's like, I, I'm talking to you guys. I'm like, God, I do an awful lot of crap. No wonder I'm so nah. overwhelmed. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I was going to say about being a parent, you know, that's such an interesting mm -hmm. adventure in itself. And mm -hmm. there's so much, again, in horror, when we look at things like Rosemary's baby, you know, yeah. that really addresses the fear of becoming a mother and motherhood and your sure. body changing and your identity yeah. changing. And yeah. I mean, and that's very real and, and people yeah. don't realize part of what's brilliant about Rosemary's baby is that what it talks about in metaphor are these fears that mothers face that when yeah. you become yeah. pregnant, you are about to embark on something that is a very huge thing. Um, mm -hmm. and it's, I do not have children by the way. So, um, I, I raised my two brothers and my sister. That was enough. Um, I kept oh, my little God. brother out of juvie. Yeah, I'm imagine. kind of over it. I, Congratulations I, I, on that. Thinking to myself, I was probably like 10 and I remember thinking to myself, who would do this for fun? Like, this is awful. I'm not having kids ever. And I mean, I love my brothers and my sister, but I'm just, I was like, yeah, no. So I had yeah. to marry a guy who didn't want kids either. Cause I was like, I, just so you know, I'm not doing that. I did it already. It wasn't fun. Yeah. You know, um, it. Yeah. totally legit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, well, and two, it is because too, I think, you know, there's a very big difference when you decide to have a child with the person you love and it is something that you wish yeah. to embark on together yeah. as opposed to here these fucking three brats that aren't yours uh, figure yeah. it out that, yeah. that's, yeah. that's that's a very good. different thing that's <laughs> completely different. i mean i you know you were t you, you said your age my age is uh 41 and so and my husband and i have been together 15 years like wow to get dating mm. and then married but yep. like so it's it took a while to like make the choice, yep. you know, like, and, and be like, okay, I think we're going to do this, you know, like, um, or I think we're ready to see what comes, you know, yeah. but the, I mean, it's not an easy decision and we could talk about politics and all of that, but like, um, it's for real, like that it's not, I think, I think Sam and I were actually talking about Rosemary's baby, but maybe not on the microphone <laughs> like, um, when Mike, Sam and I were doing the like the Halloween yeah. podcast. Yeah, uh, that was really I, good. I really enjoyed that episode. It was excellent. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, that yeah, was a fun time. That was super fun. But yeah, no, I mean the the metaphor of like the fear of becoming a mother, fear yep. of what will happen. You know, is is super real and nothing that you can under like nothing I could have understood until I was like right into it, you know? Yep. But um, yeah, it's, 
Yeah. And that's and why we often say it's really <laughs> subjective because each yeah. viewer, especially to horror, I think, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly to other things, that's what speaks to us, but horror in particular, you bring, we say this all the time on the Dark Discussions podcast, You, br- the viewer brings their own experience to it. So yeah. like, what is scary? That's why it's so hard to say, you know, like when they market stuff and they go, scariest movie ever. Okay, well, you know what? Yeah, right. It might not be the scariest movie ever to someone or right. to someone else, like the movie Mama that came out with Guillermo mm. del Toro. That had a typically, I love Guillermo del Toro. I'm not speaking ill of that man. I think he's brilliant. But his endings always leave me a little lacking. They always go in a way that I don't really think is a good match. But that's my personal opinion, whatever. However, he did Mama. I knew it was going to be a silly ending. And it was a silly ending, but whatever. But the first three quarters of that movie moved me to no end. I was sobbing. I was terrified. Why? I had a dead mother. I got it to someone else. I mean, I read reviews that were like, this movie's stupid and this movie's, and that's fine. But if you had had that experience of being abandoned by your mother at a young age, that opening scene is a completely different ballgame. That is terrifying for you because you are reliving that moment because you're bringing your own experience. And so I think true to what you just said with Rosemary's baby, it speaks to you more now because you right. can relate to that experience. And that's why horror is so funky sometimes because mm-hmm. it's not going to be scary. What, what is scary or emotionally moving to one person may not bother a different person. It might just seem right. silly or it might seem like they can't touch that. And I yeah. do think that that's also why horror is important because mm-hmm. we can reach everyone. There's a story. There is a horror story out there for everyone. Mm-hmm. It's just that everybody has to find everybody has to find it you know yeah it's funny you know i just saw nope um and oh I had, yeah do you see it no uh, i want to but i didn't see it yet but i'm planning on it yeah i had such a crazy experience with that movie because i um you know it that was sort of the thing oh it's the scariest movie ever like it's jordan peele's new joint it's gonna be real 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 spooky you know whatever and it's something completely different and i really went mm-hmm. in being like, okay, it's summer. I love Independence Day. I want to see some alien yeah. stuff, you know, whatever. Oh, interesting. And it yeah. becomes this, not to spoil it too much, but it becomes this story about our relationship to stories and how oh, much wow. um, how much uh, like art takes from us. And even in little ways, like mm. um, he mentions Chris Catan, who broke his neck filming SNL. And even that, like, how do you, like, how much do you hurt your body for something like, SNL, you know, how much is that worth right. to us? And as a storyteller, I left feeling very frustrated. I was like, I wanted more, you know, uh, whatever. And then by the time I went to bed, I was like, I loved it and I can't wait to oh. see it again. Oh, know, the more wow. I, it sat with me, because it was sort of, um, you know, calling out storytelling and movie makers and like, mm. how, what do you put into it and what do you get back out? You know, people die mm-hmm. for that perfect shot. You know, I'm um, definitely going to make sure I see that now that you said it, because I was very confused by it. And I'm not typically one who pays attention to reviews. If I want to go see Mm. something, I don't care how sucky they say it is. If it interests me, I'm going to go try it. Hell yeah. I can own mine. Thank you. But I was (laughs) concerned about Nope, because the things 
that I wasn't even seeing bad reviews or good reviews. I was just seeing people kind of going, I don't know what that, what, like, I don't know yeah. how to process yeah. that. And I was kind of like, okay, so what is this? I, I wasn't mm. even sure. But now that you said that, cause like, I loved get out, even though it was yeah. a modern day Stepford wives, basically, that's yeah. what that was. And sure. I loved, yeah. um, I loved, uh, what was the second one he did? I can't remember us, the name of I, it. Yeah. Us, that was I liked- scary. That bothered yeah. me, but yeah, go ahead. That was. I was just going to say, it. us, uh, us worked less well for me us. than Get Out. I thought, but I, I think they're us, both great. That was the and, name of it. Yeah, yeah. But it makes sense that he's tackling something sort of amorphous, though, because his first two movies did do that. Um, mm-hmm. As opposed to, you know, you look at something like Ari Aster or Ari Aster, mm-hmm. who did mm-hmm. Midsummer and Hereditary. And right. those movies really disturbed me. Like I had a rough time, yeah. which I was excited about because I watched so much horror that I'm like desensitized. So yeah, if I'm right. on the yeah. at the end of your movie to the point where I come home in shock and can't talk and you have to give me whiskey just to calm me down, which is mm. what happened after both of those movies. Wow. Um then you win, dude. I don't know what you did, but you did something because I normally don't feel that anymore. And then the lighthouse, I was not, I think that was the other dude. I think that was Eggers was the lighthouse. I was not happy with that. I liked the witch, but the lighthouse, I was like, this is kind of a mess. I wasn't sure what he was trying to say with that. And then I felt sort of the same. I mean, men I had a hard time with, I said earlier, like, and I feel that that's sort of a balance that the horror genre is still trying to figure out or trying to um, navigate in new ways. Like, how do you tell a satisfying story in a way in which the metaphor is also satisfying? And I think that men, for me, I know it worked for a lot of people, but for me, it really sacrificed the satisfying story for like sort of a spectacle of metaphor. And I think Nope really ties that or toes that line in an interesting way. But Nope had a profound effect on me. <laughs> I just I'm definitely really gonna like, yeah. I'm gonna make sure I see it now. Because uh yeah, yeah I was kinda like, I don't know, you know, and I'm in the AMC theaters, like Stubbs Club or whatever, so I get like free. Right. Oh, so you like, can go. You're <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, I can totally go. But I don't go like I didn't do the premiere, which is like up to yeah. or no, I'm in the premiere. I'm not in the big one where it's like three movies a week because I said dude yeah i don't even have time to go to the bathroom three times a week like i'm not (laughs) gonna go to the movies three times a week but the premiere i like because i get the five dollars back and like i just went to go see the fire of love about the volcanologists um and i didn't even pay for my tickets because i had so many rewards stacked up but um nice but yeah that was an art house film though if you're looking for a documentary that was not a documentary Mm. i would recommend it for volcano geeks absolutely it's it's beautiful it's you're getting close up you know and you're seeing um footage that's never been seen it was all in their Mm. basement so you know, it's wonderful stuff. But if if you're looking for a documentary about them, this is not it. It is an art house okay. film. It is narrated by Miranda July, which should pretty much tell you everything wow. you need to know right there um, about it's about its ilk. That's not a criticism. Yeah. I'm just saying about its ilk. That's kind of what it is. It's, it's more like an art film. It is a spectacle of beauty. And 
and it's very slow. I was thrilled because I knew every single eruption they were talking about, and my husband was with me, and like they would go, oh, and they did this in 1973, and I'd go, oh my God, and Nathan would be like, what is that? Why is that important? I'd be like, oh, well, that was the one where all these people, you know, whatever, and I could, you know, <laughs> and, he's, and then I came out of there going, wow, I know a lot of shit that really nobody just needs to know um but whatever <laughs> what are you gonna do right yeah right well nobody i'll be really curious to hear yeah <laughs> well we care i'll be really curious to hear your thoughts on nope uh if and when you get to go see it but oh, yeah I, definitely gonna go check it out now so cool i mean not yeah. this week but I, i'm definitely gonna try to go see it so <laughs> Well, I'm you know you're just talk, you're talking about volcanoes. I'm excited to read your uh, "Beware Burning Snow." Oh, thank um, you. I'd love to know what you think. Like vol, you you said ash ghosts. Yeah. Like it it maybe this will spark something. But what what the image that sparked in my brain was this sculpture that I had, and I think it was a like made it like a religious uh sculpture i don't i don't remember the figure but um it was a thing that i had in my house when i was a kid that was made in the philippines um when mount pinatubo interrupted erupted yeah yeah Yeah. other people probably don't know about this i'm filipino um you know and uh, my parents had gone there and or i don't know if they had gone there but um i these these figurines were being sold to uh, you know fundraise for uh the survivors uh victims and survivors like of uh the Mount Pinatubo inter- in- I keep saying interruption eruption which is not wrong <laughs> right it did interrupt it, it, isn't, like, it oh, did yeah. interrupt <laughs> but i remember having this like just like gray hard but kind like it kind of soft like i felt like i if i if I squeezed it hard enough, it would crumble, but it, it, mm. it didn't, it never did. Cause I never wanted to try, but that's the image that popped in my head when you said ash ghosts. <laughs> like, it's going like, to be similar the- to that. Maybe that yeah. will evoke memories. That's interesting. Mm. So when you see their description, maybe that yeah. will kind of evoke a memory of that, but that's exactly what I'm saying about how powerful it is. Like she yeah. connected with that, because she had this specific thing. Yeah. Her, and that's really cool, by the way. I wonder if I can yeah. find some of them on eBay. I actually, uh, I don't know. Yeah. well, I don't know. I actually have um, an, an, a lamp, an oil lamp that's made out of ash from Mount St. Helens that someone okay. who went there two years after it erupted brought back for me. So that's like one of my most treasured possessions. Um, wow. But yeah, that that's amazing about that statue. Now I'm like going to Google it and see if I can see pictures because that's the kind of stuff I'm into, right? Yeah, like, it was just a small thing. And I, junk I like haven't that. even like, thought about it since I was like nine or something, you know, but like it was a thing that was like in my childhood bedroom forever. And I don't even know if I have it here, but like it's it's probably in my mom's storage unit. You just gave me the most awesome story idea, by the way. Nice. Yeah, something different. I'm excited. I'm excited. Well, send the link to me when you write it. I will. (laughs) And publish it (laughs) because I'm sure. Uh, Yeah, I will. It's just a question of I have to do like I'm trying to put things in order of how to get things done. And I just started this other Mm. short story that's turning into a novella and then, and I'm just like, uh, head spinning, but 
And then the 10th anniversary edition of Bad Apple is supposed to have all this wonderful new material out, you know, in it. And um, hmm. yeah, I need to, that's coming out October 1st and I haven't done that yet. So mm-hmm. I guess I better get moving. <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll get it. My publisher is not going to be happy. That's all I have to say. <laughs> By the time they hear this, um, you will have done it. I will have <laughs> done it. Yes. I think that's so funny how publishing works too, where you're like, it's going to have all this stuff that doesn't exist yet. Like, but I'm yeah, talking about it. Like, it's don't worry us. about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so on on that note, to wrap up, um, can you can you talk about um, like a typical day for you writing and editing? Like, I don't know how you get all this stuff. Done. <laughs> I don't know how I get it all done either. Um, but how do, how do you usually organize your time? Like, as you know, because I think that could be useful for many of us writers. <laughs> of course. There. Okay, so. Um, my day usually will start with whatever short fiction I'm working on. Um, I am the type of writer that does not write every day. I do Mm -hmm. not force myself to write every day. Um, But if I am actively working on a piece of fiction, a short fiction, typically my entire day will be that short fiction piece day in and day out until my brain says you need to stop. Um, So I will start with fiction if I'm working on a fiction piece. Then I will usually shift to administrative things uh, to give my brain that break, like um, blog posts I may have to take care of, Mm -hmm. uh, any social media stuff I have to do, things like that. Then I will usually shift into 34 Orchard or editing mode. Um, Because like Mm -hmm. right now I have an anthology going on as well as 34 Orchard. So I will shift into whatever's going on with that. And then I will usually finish up my day with emails and correspondence Mm -hmm. and things of that nature. But Mm -hmm. I have always felt if it's helpful for listeners, if you have something that is requiring creativity in an intense way, like short fiction or poetry, you should get up and do that when your mind is fresh. Yes, there are writers who do that in the evening, There are people who do that at night, in which case reverse the process. If you're better at night, then leave your short fiction at night and do your administrative and your editing during the day. But I've always been a morning person with the short fiction. That just works Mm -hmm. better for me um, because my brain is fresh and my brain will tell me when it's time. Like there are times when I will sit there and work on a piece of short fiction and I'm literally focused on the same like section or scene for like three hours and my brain goes, okay, you're done now. You're done for the day. You've done your work. Just move on to the next thing. And like I said, I think the creative life is very fluid. So you just adjust Mm -hmm. as needed. You know, if you were just figure out where your creative, your most creative, your best creative time is, and then work all that other stuff around it. But I always leave correspondence for the evening because unless I'm having like when I'm actively reading for 34 Orchard and I'm spending my entire day because there are times when I'm like, okay, today is just all 34 Orchard and then I will do that all day long. But like I said, I'm not always creatively writing something. Mm -hmm. So in that case, if I'm not creatively writing something, I will start with editing for Mm -hmm. the day and Mm -hmm. do the and whatever. But yeah, that's how my day works. That's how my day goes. Wow. That's so, awesome. Yeah. And then, you know, then you're thinking about like, I need to get my oil changed and pay my bills. And I, I just would like everybody to know that that stuff is always last. And yeah. uh, <laughs> that's why I have no idea when the last time was I changed the oil in my car. And or uh, that's why you ha- do laundry 
every three months. <laughs> I do on it. Yeah, right. <laughs> what am I eating today? Oh, here's a bag of potato chips. My doctor's horrified. He's like, you eat what? I said, potato chips and ice cream. It's there. Yeah. When yeah. was the last time you ate a meal? I don't know. Ask my husband. He cooked for me. I have no idea. I don't know. Yeah. I can't what do you, you mean potato chips and ice cream isn't a meal? Like, what are you saying? Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know? Totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Sometimes I sometimes I make Meal some shaming. Dip. Yeah, sometimes I make some dip oh, yeah, if I'm feeling well, in the mood. Dip definitely makes it a meal. Yes. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just do the plain sour cream because I'm too lazy to actually put the dip powder in. That happens to me all the time. Uh, sour I'm too cream is good on that. Uh, sour cream is great. <laughs> That's enough. <laughs> We're good. That's amazing. <laughs> I love that. Uh, well, I mean, like, the... <laughs> The thing that, like, me and my high school friends used to do is, like, the fries in the, fro- like, Frosties at Wendy's. Oh, um, oh yeah. You know? So it's kind of this, you could do the potato chip in ice cream. You and could. And that. It would work. Hey, it would yeah. work. <laughs> See, but you kind of need the thicker potato chip to, like, stand up to it. Yeah, you so. need, like, the good ones. Like, the real thick, yeah. like, the kettle ones that are kettle super cooks, thick. Yeah. Like, For we sure. have um a Stu Leonard's here, which is, like, a Connecticut... Yeah like you know yeah. it's a connecticut thing and they have these potato chips that they make there and they are thick and like yeah oh they're awesome mm. that would work for the ice cream because yeah, they're thick sure. enough oh you could God. actually use it as a scoop and it would not break it's pretty sure. awesome L- see see <laughs> listeners you're re- learning so much stuff right now yeah <laughs> this is all this is bonus <laughs> material <laughs> <laughs> no this is this is top you know we should move this to the like trailer yeah <laughs> 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 eating habits of horror writers i love it oh my god I listen to that. It. oh my god <laughs> well you guys can maybe maybe um we can do another like theme podcast where you can yeah, talk about project. that yeah that would be yeah. fun yeah that would be awesome. fun well thank you so much christy for this yeah. awesome conversation we went like two hours well thank you so much i'm sorry i talked so much no, no that's, this was perfect. it's a podcast yeah. <laughs> it's a podcast and you're the guest so that's that's your job <laughs> today <laughs> it's my job i guess yeah <laughs> but and good luck at uh necromicon thank um, you i'm very excited amazing yeah. very excited. that's awesome and really cool. what was the story? Is that being published somewhere? The story that you're reading there? Yes, I'm going to tease the story Song for a Dying World. It is okay. due hmm. out in my collection in 2024. Although awesome. I do have it submitted somewhere. So if they say yes, then it'll go there. But either way, it's okay. it's it's the flagship story for my collection either way. Um, okay. so it'll be out either way. I just sent it to this one call because I was like, oh, that's interesting. I, it's a good, I'll take a stab at it. It was like a, why not? I don't yeah. really, okay. you know, I mean, it may or may, I wasn't worried about it. Cause I'm like, if they say no, I'm, it's going in my thing anyway. Like, cause I can yeah. put it in my new collection as a reprint at that okay. point. So either way, it doesn't matter. So it will be out just, uh, not until probably 2024, and if okay. they take it, that means it won't be out till 2023. So we just got to wait and see. Okay. Okay. Cool. Always sounds, a plan. Sounds good. <laughs> Very exciting. <laughs> so awesome. Well, safe travels. Have a great time. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Oh Thank my gosh. I, I'm excited. I, 
Yeah, I'm really, uh, this has been really fun getting to talk to you. I'm excited that this is going to be, uh, I think, I guess the first episode of our new season. Is that the plan? Sure. <laughs> All right. <Yeah. laughs> I'll say I'm excited too, and um, and I'm very thankful. Thank you for having me on, and um, yeah. it was really awesome. And yeah, Necronomicon's going to be good. I've got my gown for the ball. There's a street party under the stars with beer by Narragansett oh Beers. God. There's a lot of academic things going on. There's a film festival. There's an art show, which is like my favorite. So yeah, I'm excited. I love the weird love art it. show. It's fantastic. It's just it's like <laughs> it, it's awesome. So amazing. Well, and I think this episode it is such a great example of sort of the magic of Goddard in the world because I had no idea that you were a fellow Goddardite um, yeah. until I submitted to Thirty Four Orchard and you were like, "Oh, by the way, it's always nice to see a fellow Goddard alum." And I was like, "Get yeah. the fuck out." <laughs> <laughs> So I love this that. Is so fun. Um, and like, I think a good like poster episode for like, go to Goddard, you'll, you never know. And like, you know, I have those experiences like all the time where someone is like, oh, Goddard. And I'm like, fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so. It's so funny. It's like, always your response. It's like, fuck off. Fuck you. <laughs> it's like, I, I have a, uh, I know I have another writer that that I'm publishing and she's a Goddardite too. And she's a very okay. big writer. So I should check in with her too. But yeah. So nice. yeah, it's funny. Every time I, sometimes I get random emails like I did from Sam and it's like, Oh, and I went to Goddard and I'm like, Oh my God, it's a Goddard person. And I always spend time talking to them extra That's because amazing. it's like, you yeah. went to school where I did. Cause we are a small school. I mean, yeah. we're far reaching, but we're small. And so yeah. it is always a real treat when you meet someone that is from the same school as you. Yeah. You know? So fun. Yeah. I'm I'm photographing a performance like movement piece um on Tuesday and I got the gig through a fr- a theater friend. She um my friend just recommended me because she knows me as a photographer of theater and this the the dancer performer they reached out to me and they said oh we would love you you know to have you and I looked at their Facebook profile and I'm like wait do you go to Goddard (laughs) (laughs) because it said currently attending Goddard College MFAIA and they said yeah I'm starting in July I'm like oh my god that's nuts (laughs) (laughs) fuck off fuck all the way off no when i lived in brooklyn and park slope there was a a freddy's bar which i think is still there um but they had karaoke and so my roommate and i went did karaoke a couple times and there was a guy who was uh photographing the whole thing and posted some of the pictures to instagram um and they were like you know we don't know how to tag you because we don't know who you are um but here's our instagram and you can go look at it um and the guy who was taking pictures was from goddard like had gone to goddard Uh, and i was like that is so crazy that i was just you know drunk doing karaoke and the guy right across from me taking my picture was a fellow goddard person that's so crazy and you know it's like you said there's a magic there like i remember we were in charge of throwing the graduation party for the Mm. january i think it was 2009 Mm -hmm. So that was my friends, Jimmy and Megan, that I mentioned they were graduating. So I ended up in charge of the party because I was like, okay, I'm going to throw a a great party. 
And I <laughs> went to it. get, I went, thank you. I went to get shrimp and everybody's like, why are you doing shrimp? I said, trust me, nobody will forget the part. My mom always said, just put shrimp at a party and everybody, you could fill up the rest of the table with bread and like garbage and all they remember is the shrimp, trust me. So I was like, fine. Yeah. So I go and get shrimp, forgetting that, you know, you are at Goddard. It's not like you have an ice machine and nice bowls and things like this. So I ended up putting the shrimp, because it was winter, in a bowl that I found in one of the dorms that I washed. And then it was snowing that night. So we just put it all on the snow. And to this day, I get emails about how great that party was. And they all go, because remember the shrimp in the snow? And I laugh and I go, my mom was so right. They don't remember anything else. They just remember the damn shrimp in this grubby bowl in snow. But that's That's Goddard magic, right? You're like, I was just like, go get some snow. And they're like, what? I said, well, just make sure the snow isn't yellow, but just get some snow and it'll be fine. You got plenty of it, you know. Yeah. What do you think ISIS? <laughs> you have to improvise when you're at Goddard, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, you really do. It's a great school, so. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Christy. This is amazing. Yeah, thank thank you. you. I had a blast. Awesome. I had a total blast. I had so much fun. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you again. Have a great rest of your day. And, you uh, too. Yeah. Yeah, we'll talk again soon. I mean, you always have stuff coming out, so yeah. feel free I know to come I have to on. get. Now I'm like, oh no! Tomorrow I have to go back to work, and I have to go to the grocery store because I have no food for tomorrow. I better go get some. Yeah, out of chips. Okay, out of chips. Go, go do that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> All, right. All right, take care. See ya. Right. Bye. Bye. This podcast is a project of Goddard Alumni Association. It is produced, hosted, and edited by Sam Rubline and Amanda Faye Laxon. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast or would like more information, please visit goddardalumni.com slash podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. See you next time.